This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Charter schools are in trouble, says a new report from the Pacific Research Institute in San Francisco, California. Unions are striking, not just to get a pay increase, which is the usual purpose, but to keep charters from gaining more traction. States are using the COVID crisis to cut back on charter funding. Virtual charters are taking a special hit at the very time that almost every school is using online tools to teach kids. All of this is happening at the same time charters are getting stronger and the evidence is piling up that students are learning more in that sector than in the sector run by school districts. And they're more adaptive to the challenges of COVID, say other studies. So why are charters in trouble when actually they're doing pretty well? And what can be done about it? I'm pleased to have with me the author of the Pacific Institute report, Lance Izumi, the Senior Director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Institute. Thank you, Lance, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Paul, it's a great pleasure to be with you here on the Education Exchange. Look forward to our conversation. Well, Lance, the Pacific Institute is located in California, and you talk about it quite a bit in your report. So a lot of us don't know. We don't follow the details out there, but what exactly is happening out in, in California uh, in the debate over uh, where we should be headed with respect to charter schools? Well, you know, in this uh, report that I put out on the uh, emerging obstacles uh, to charter schools, you know, I really identify uh, three major areas where you're seeing obstacles being erected to charter schools. Uh, the first one is in uh, restrictive laws uh, regarding the operation of charter schools. Uh, secondly, in defunding charter schools during this COVID crisis. And then uh, actions by the teachers unions to um, use um, uh, the crisis uh, in order to uh, stop the establishment of charter schools. And each one of these uh, different areas uh, Various states across the country have been very active against charter schools, but it's been especially the case in California. And if you look, for example, uh, when it comes to, let's say, the establishment of restrictive laws in, regarding the operation of charter schools, in 2019, uh, California passed a major, ref uh, well, what the, the unions thought was a reform of the charter law, but it was basically a huge set of added restrictions on charter schools that would allow school boards to deny charters to um, a whole classification of uh, charter petitioners, uh, ranging from uh, the, based upon their determination about whether those uh, uh, petitions uh, don't serve community interests, uh, whether they have a negative impact on uh, fiscal impact on the district, uh, whether they undermine existing services and whether they duplicate uh, already existing programs in the district. So let me interrupt you at that point and ask you, since that law was passed, have any charters been approved in California? Well, uh, a lot of them have not been approved. In fact, uh, one of the things that this uh, law has done, according to the governor, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, has said that it uh, creates this rebuttable presumption that is like in districts where they're having, let's say financial difficulties, that the rebuttable presumption is that no new charter schools will be approved. And so therefore it makes it virtually impossible for uh, new charters in uh, a lot of the urban areas where they are having uh, financial difficulties, which are no fault of charter schools, 
but uh, the fault of uh, mismanagement on the part of the districts uh, going into uh, union contracts that they can't afford, et cetera, that, uh, but the charters are being used as a scapegoat and therefore uh, no new charters are being approved in many of these places. And uh, you, you talk to uh, longtime charter observers here in California and they uh, all say that it's um, basically gonna put uh, charter, uh, uh, new charter establishment uh, at a standstill. So it, um, it, that's one way in which they're doing it. What are some of the other things that they're doing out there in California? On the well, the, one of the other major things that's uh, gone on, especially during this COVID crisis, Paul, has been uh, uh, the California legislature's uh, successful attempt to basically defund uh, certain classifications of charter schools. So uh, charter schools that are growing are now receiving only partial funding for that growth. So, you know, uh, the way that the California legislature has adopted uh, funding uh, mechanisms now under COVID is that uh, a charter school will uh, um, propose a budget for let's say the upcoming school year. And of course, in that budget, they'll have a estimate about the number of kids that will be uh, new kids who attend the school. Well, come enrollment time, there may actually be more kids who actually enrolled than they projected. So let's say you projected 400 kids that will be new to the school, but it turns out there are 500. Well, the legislature will only fund the 400. They will not fund the added uh, 100 that uh, appeared actually on the doorstep of the school on the opening day. And so- Well, that, that, that can be quite important because uh, I'm seeing some evidence out there that the charter school sector may in fact be growing as people are switching away from district schools because of COVID. Are you seeing any signs of that in California? Yeah, we, we are seeing uh, signs of that uh, in California. Uh, we're, because uh, I think for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, the, pub, the regular public schools have been very slow and very ineffective at pivoting from uh, their old model of in-person instruction to a remote distance learning model. And so what you're seeing in a lot of the uh, regular public schools is, um, you know, first of all, the teachers don't have the training uh, in order to be able to uh, effectively implement a distance learning program. And therefore the, what happens is that you have very minimal contact between the teacher and the students and you are seeing uh, more and more students who are basically falling away from the public system. Uh, I think the charters have been much more effective in, in pivoting to a uh, totally online situation uh, because we have here in California, for example, uh, many charter schools that uh, had already had uh, online learning platforms embedded within their, uh, their, their models. We had the summit uh, charter schools here in California, which are known uh, nationwide as being one of the innovators when it comes to online learning. And so those types of schools have been very effective in you know, uh, pivoting with the COVID crisis. And so uh, you're seeing more students who are gravitating to uh, those types of schools. And that presents the second problem uh, when it comes to funding, Paul, is, is that uh, the legislature decided not to fund any growth at all to online virtual charter schools here in California. So well, uh, that certainly is odd. If they aren't going to have any additional funding to any virtual school at the very time when every school is becoming a virtual school or at least a hybrid school, uh, what, what sense does that make? 
No, it doesn't make any sense, Paul. Uh, you know, here you have a group of schools, these virtual online charter schools, which are, um, I mean, that's their specialty, right? Is to operate in a, a distance, uh, remote virtual learning environment for these kids. And that would, you would think, be the very type of schools that you would be encouraging, uh, not only the ones that are existing, but the, you know, to establish new ones in order to meet the demand of, uh, for students who are falling away from the public, the regular public system. And yet what you find is that uh, the, these virtual uh, online charter schools are not getting any growth whatsoever. So, you know, they may have 500 new students or whatever it is the school may have invested in uh, new hardware, software, uh, whatever, and yet, uh, and, and teachers, and yet that growth is not uh, funded uh, by the legislature. So why is this happening? California has the reputation of being one of the leaders in the charter school movement. There's been more charter schools established in California than in in most any state. I don't know if it's number one, but it's right up there towards the top. So why, what's happened in California that we are getting these cuts and slashes and nicks and so forth on and the charter front? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a couple of uh, things, Paul, is that you're right. Uh, California had been a leader in uh, charter schools. I mean, we certainly had one of the first charter school laws in the country in, from the early 1990s. Uh, we have around, I believe, around 1,200 charter schools right now in the state, um, which is a large number, uh, you know, certainly compared to other states. And, uh, but I think that what's, what's happened, and, and you've had bipartisan support. Uh, for charter schools, at least significant support within, let's say, the Democratic Party. Uh, and so, but things have changed over time. Uh, the unions have always been powerful here in California. Uh, they've only grown more powerful as uh, the, the state has become a basically one-party state with the Democrats in control of a supermajority in the legislature and the governor's office. However, when Governor Jerry Brown was governor of California, he was uh, a pro-charter uh, governor. And uh, he himself had started uh, several charter schools in Oakland when he was mayor. And so uh, whenever bad charter legislation came to his desk, he almost always vetoed them. But now you have uh, Governor Gavin Newsom who uh, is governor and uh, he was endorsed by the California Teachers Association and he has carried through on a lot of their wishes. And so I think there's, uh, uh, that change in uh, the political landscape up in Sacramento has been huge. But then also too, the unions themselves have been much more proactive in uh, putting charter schools in their crosshairs and they've used things like teacher strikes uh, in order to accomplish that. And I'll take as one example down in Los Angeles, uh, you know, uh, your listeners may have recalled that across the country in 2019, we had a whole slew of teacher strikes, but we had a bunch of them in California. Uh, one of the major ones was in Los Angeles. And when the union went on strike down there, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, uh, their, their goal really wasn't uh, to uh, you know, uh, change too much with regard to wages and benefits. They ended up settling for exactly what the school district had offered. But one of the things that they did extract from the uh, school board was to get them to vote for a resolution calling for a moratorium on the establishment of new charter schools in California. And this was really interesting, Paul, because given that that school board had recently been elected as a pro-charter school majority, and yet because of the power of the unions and this strike, they were able to turn this pro-charter school school board around and 
got them to vote for a moratorium on charter schools. And so that shows you the kind of power that the unions wield here in California. Well, that's all uh, fascinating. And it gives us a picture of what's happening out there in California. But on the national front, are the things really quite as bad as you say they are? We just uh, have heard about a new secretary of education being appointed by the president-elect, Joe Biden, and his name is Miguel Cardona, formerly the secretary of education for the state of Connecticut. And people say he's not hostile to charters. So isn't that a pretty good sign that we're not going to see uh, the same kind of hostility to charters at the national level that we uh, are witnessing in California? Well, uh, you know, I, I, well, first of all, I would say that uh, the fact that Miguel Cardona was uh, selected by uh, Joe Biden to be uh, Secretary of Education was certainly a better choice than having uh, Lily Garcia, the former NEA uh, president who was really campaigning for the job and many thought had an inside track on becoming education sector that uh, she didn't get the, uh, the nomination. But um, yeah, it is true that uh, Cardona seems uh, you know, better than her. Uh, certainly his record in uh, Connecticut seems like he's at least more open to listening you know, to charter supporters. Um, I think though it is still an open question about what the policy is gonna be coming out of, um, uh, out of Washington. Uh, even though Cardona may have had this uh, softer history with regard to charter schools in Connecticut, uh, the fact remains that uh, uh, Joe Biden received huge amounts of support uh, politically from the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers. If you look at his uh, education transition team, uh, there's not one, but there are actually three top level officials with the American Federation of Teachers who serve on that transition team, in addition to uh, a top official from the National Education Association. So, you know, given the fact that they have put out policy recommendations for the uh, incoming president that are, you know, quite hostile to charter schools, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how Cardona and uh, Biden uh, navigate between, you know, uh, perhaps their openness to some types of charter schools uh, versus what uh, their very staunch political supporters in the unions want. Well, that's that's all interesting. Uh, but, you know, transition teams can recommend. Uh, it's up to the president and his people to decide. And, uh, you know, it is the case that the unions were on board for one of his opponents, uh, uh, our, our great senator from the state of Massachusetts, <laughs> And not so much for Biden in the early days of the primary, and, and maybe that was going to come back to haunt them. Isn't don't you think that's something they have to worry about? Well, I think that you know perhaps you know although I think that uh, the fact that uh, Biden is you know really indebted to the uh, progressive wing of the Democratic Party in many ways. I mean, which is why you had the. Uh, the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force, right? They came out with recommendations. Uh, and in those recommendations, there were some that were hostile to charter schools. And so I think that, um, you know, it's going to be, uh, again, uh, a bit of a tightrope, I think, for the uh, administration uh, to do enough to mollify their supporters, because regardless of whether the unions uh, went out uh, hard for uh, Elizabeth Warren in you know early part of the primary, they certainly were huge supporters of uh, Biden. You know during the uh, campaign, and uh, you know the uh, the Biden uh, 
keeps referring to his wife, um, Jill, Dr. Jill Biden, as a you know card-carrying NEA member. So you know, it'll be interesting to see what influence she may have on the president. Well, I'm all for PhD professors being called doctors. So uh, this is uh, this is all right with me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I. Uh, well, let me ask you at the state level, though, because, you know, the Republicans actually did pretty well in uh, in in the state elections and uh, and down in New Orleans. They, I think they did fairly well in uh, the school board election where there was a pretty uh, hotly contested race. So maybe the political situation isn't so bad for the school choice movement uh, in other parts of the country. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think that portends well, you know, certainly, you know, uh, when you have states, let's say like Florida, right, where you have Republican majorities, Republican governor, very uh, reform minded, you know, pro school choice, um, you know, uh, majorities there that, you know, things get done. I mean, Ron DeSantis has done a great job in terms of expanding already existing uh, school choice uh, programs there, like the Gardner scholarships for um kids with special needs and uh, he's, he's been able to expand that so I think that you know and certainly in some of those states uh, where you have uh, Republican governors maybe expanded Republican majorities uh, in the legislatures that you can get uh, some things done uh, with regard to uh, in improving school choice I think though that it would be wrong to simply assume however that because you may have a Republican governor or a Republican majority in the state legislature that that automatically will ensure that you'll have, um, you know, uh, large school choice programs. I think we saw that in West Virginia, where uh, originally uh, the a couple a uh, year or two ago the um, state legislature was proposing a, a pretty large uh, charter school bill because West Virginia did not have a charter school law. And this would have established charter schools down in West Virginia. And with a, a large uh, Republican majority there, they were gonna uh, push through this very um, uh, expansive charter school uh, law. And yet the teacher unions in West Virginia struck and uh, basically they invaded the state capital and uh, were chanting, you know, uh, public schools, yes, charter schools, no. And um, the Republicans basically backed off from that uh, very, expansive charter school uh, proposal to a much, much watered down version, which only allows, I believe, three charter schools in the first uh, two or three year uh, phase of the program and only three charter schools for every three year phase after that. So, you know, you only have a handful of charter schools in a state where three out of four of the students in West Virginia uh, are not performing at the proficient level in reading and mathematics. And so, you know, again, it's, uh, I think th there's greater potential for uh, charter school and school choice laws in states that, uh, you know, have expanded Republican majorities, but it's not a guarantee. So what do we do going forward? What's your recommendation for, given the political situation, the environment, what's the best strategy in the next uh, two to four years? How, how do you see this situation being addressed? Well, I think, you know, there, there are two major things. And, you know, one of the things that uh, you, you're seeing already is that uh, with charter schools being endangered, certainly in places like California, one of the things that uh, you're seeing is uh, both a political and a legal strategy being implemented. Uh, on the political side, uh, charter schools are 
getting their grassroots out. They're uh, trying to like uh, change the minds of legislators. It's difficult, however, when a lot of those legislators are already indebted to the teachers unions, you know, through contributions and that sort of thing. The other, you know, and because of that, uh, one of the things that uh, we're seeing much more in California is a much more aggressive legal strategy by uh, charter schools. So I mentioned uh, earlier that uh, California had passed a couple of defunding uh, laws that you know defunded growing charter schools and de basically defunding um, the growth in uh, 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 virtual online charter schools. Well, those two groups of charter schools have each filed lawsuits against the state of California because uh, based upon uh, violations of the state constitution that guarantees equal protection. So, uh, so, and also the state charter law that says that there should be fair and equal treatment for charter schools vis-a-vis -vis regular public schools and the various other state laws as well. So, you know, those uh, uh, lawsuits uh, were filed uh, in the fall. Uh, they're being pushed forward. They should, uh, you know, uh, be some uh, movement on that sometime in the first part of this year. So we'll see, you know, how, how that goes. But I, I think that um, the fact that the charters were uh, very aggressive out of the gate, as soon as that, those things were passed, that they, uh, you know, jumped in with lawsuits, that this puts uh, people in Sacramento on notice that the charter schools aren't going to take this line down. Well, so... What parts of the country do you see the situation being the most favorable? I know you mentioned Florida, but I, you know, where enrollments are growing, and they are growing in Florida, but they're also growing in Texas and uh, in part in the mountain states. Uh, uh, are we seeing uh, a different story in those parts of the country? Yeah, I, I think there are, you know, states that uh, you know are doing very well. I mean, Arizona, right next door to California, you know, has a much more um, friendly school choice environment. I visited charter schools in Arizona and written about the difference between the political environments in Arizona versus California, for example. And, uh, and so it's, uh, uh, and I, I think that a lot of it also too is given the fact that a lot of people are leaving California, going to these other states. You know, I think that uh, you know some of the people are going uh, because they want to go to states that have good education and better choices for their kids, and so therefore they're going to states like Arizona, which offer that. And uh, so I, I think that it's it's going to be uh, there is hope. I don't want this uh, people to uh, think that it's just one uh, dark future ahead of us. There is hope, uh, but I think it's, we're going to have to keep fighting for that hope. So this is an irony, though, that, as you say, it's the worst of times and the best of times because you see a lot of improvement in the charter sector and you see it uh, adapting. Uh, but then you see these uh, these new challenges arising. How do you square that circle? Well, you know, actually, it, it, in a certain way, it, it makes a little bit of sense. Right. Because if charters were small and ineffective. Right. Well, a, people wouldn't be choosing them, which would be why they'd be a small group, uh, a small sector, right? And they wouldn't be a threat to anybody. Certainly wouldn't be a threat to the existing uh, public school establishment. But, you know, once charter schools, uh, you know, prove that they are doing well, you know, as your studies and other studies have shown uh, that they're doing well, they are effective in improving the uh, achievement of kids. And therefore, more and more parents want, are gravitating to the charter sector, which means that 
more and more charter schools are started or people want to start charter schools and they start reaching critical masses in places, then I think that becomes a threat to, uh, to the establishment, right? To the regular public schools. And so it's almost as if charters are a victim of their own success because now uh, they've uh, grown to the extent that uh, they now threaten the virtual monopoly status that the regular public schools have enjoyed. And so therefore you see, uh, you know, the unions and management, you know, when, if you're talking about the school boards uh, and uh, you know, lawmakers who are beholden to the unions, all of them coalescing in order to stop charter schools because they have been so successful and are basically drawing too many consumers. So they're like the Los Angeles Dodgers. They, <laughs> Uh, they're so successful, they, they, they're a target uh, others. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly right. I, 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 you know, I appreciate the Dodger reference, you know, as an Angelino. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Lance, uh, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, I appreciate it, Paul. Great honor to be on your show. I have been speaking with Lance Izumi, the director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute in San Francisco. He is the author of a new report entitled New and Emerging Obstacles Facing Charter Schools. Thanks for joining me.